episode of Progress, Potential, and Possibilities, discussions with fascinating people designing a better tomorrow for all of us. I'm your host, Ira Pastor. Welcome, everybody, again to another episode of our show, bringing you another really fascinating guest today who is helping to create a better tomorrow uh, on many unique fronts. Uh, we have the honor today of being joined by Dr. Amy Throckmorton, who is Associate Professor uh, and Director of the BioCERC Research Laboratory in the School of Biomedical Engineering, Science, and Health Systems here in the city of Brotherly Love, Philadelphia, at Drexel University. Uh, and the, the BioCERC program um, is a fascinating one. It ultimately seeks to improve the treatment strategies and the various therapeutic options for both adult and pediatric patients that suffer from acquired or congenital heart disease uh, by developing a, a unique suite of uh, blood pumps and other devices to uh, help, you know, really a, a range of, of possibilities in terms of bridge to transplant, bridge to recovery or destination therapies. Uh, prior to this position, Dr. Thorkmorton was in the Department of Mechanical and Nuclear Engineering. Uh, at Virginia Commonwealth University. She served as associate professor and previously held the chaired uh, Kimanda assistant professorship. Uh, Dr. Throckmorton received her PhD and master's in biomedical engineering as well as her bachelor's in chemical engineering from the University of Virginia. Uh, and after working in the chemical industry, uh, she served as research assistant from 2000-2006 uh, in the Department of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering at the University of Virginia. And then after receiving her PhD, worked as a postdoc one the development of a blood contacting medical devices in the Department of Cardiothoracic Surgery uh, at Indiana University School of Medicine. Uh, a lot of really interesting and exciting stuff to discuss today, and we're lucky to have her. But Dr. Amy Throckmorton, thank you for coming on the show. Absolutely. It's such a pleasure to be here and to be able to sort of share my journey and a little bit about what we're doing at, at Drexel University. Thank you. Yeah, it's awesome. I mean, I'd love to, you know, we typically start off by handing our guests the floor for a little bit to talk about themselves, but you have a really, you know, looking at this path from mechanical aerospace engineering, nuclear, and then into biomedical, what a fascinating, take us on a little journey, if you would, Amy, on how all this started, what got you interested in it, well, actually, where you grew up, um, what got you interested in this area in general, and a little bit of this amazing path you've been on, uh, that'd be a great way to start things off. Yeah, absolutely. So I just want to start off by saying I, I definitely come from humble beginnings. My, my father is a retired mechanical engineer and material scientist. Uh, he worked for naval facilities, so for the government as a civil servant in Norfolk, Virginia. So that takes me down into the Hampton Roads area of, of Virginia, Virginia Beach. My mother is a retired high school teacher of almost 30 years. Uh, so you might see the engineer and the teacher in me. Uh, and my brother is a firefighter and a paramedic who risks his life every day in service to, to others. And so I really started my professional development at the University of, of Virginia uh, in chemical engineering. And you know, I always loved chemistry in, in high school when I was younger. And I decided to work in industry post-graduation and so I actually worked on a large chemical facility. There were four production areas mm -hmm. and I worked for Hercules Incorporated, which is okay. now Ashland Chemical. Yep. Mm -hmm. And during this time I studied and earned my EMT. Uh, so I became a certified nice. EMT 
uh, in Franklin, Virginia, so that I could really volunteer in my, my community. And, you know, demonstrating leadership and service to others is a core value of mine. It's really important to me. And my brother inspired me to become an, an EMT because, you know, he was a paramedic and I really enjoyed uh, running with him and seeing him in action. And I thought, you know, this is a way that I could really take my interest in medicine, uh, my engineering background, uh, my work as a chemical engineer in environmental and safety uh, on the plant, for instance, I was on the, both of those committees and merge all of that uh, to be able to contribute and improve uh, my, my community. Very important to, uh, to be able to give back. Um, and so all of this was around like 1998 and 2000. And I know I'm dating myself to some degree, but uh, if, if you can think back to that time frame, uh, that's really when the fields of biomedical engineering, biomedical science and technology, you know, those fields were surging. The growth was just explosive uh, in those areas. And, and so, you know, as I started to think about my future career path, you know, I decided, you know, maybe I need to do a deeper dive and maybe I need to merge my passion for medicine, helping people and engineering and look at the opportunities in biomedical engineering. Since again, this field was just sort of emerging in a really dramatic way about the time that I was thinking about considering a, a career shift. Uh, when I learned from my former faculty advisors at the University of Virginia, uh, that there were severe shortages. There was a severe technology gap uh, of cardiovascular devices for pediatric patients uh, in this country and around the world. I was shocked. It, it actually kind of took my breath away a little bit. I, I just, so I, I took a little bit of time to kind of explore that. And I realized absolutely, uh, there's a huge shortfall of technology and devices uh, for pediatric patients. And it was at that moment I decided to return to the University of Virginia uh, for an interdisciplinary graduate experience. And you can sort of see my journey that it is highly interdisciplinary in nature, uh, where I was able to you know, earn my degree and interact with the faculty and be mentored by faculty in biomedical engineering, but then perform most of my research in mechanical engineering at the University of Virginia. Uh, and the whole goal there was really to try to do what I could to address that unmet clinical need. You know, we need devices for, for children. Uh, that's just, you know, that's just where we're at. And we still continue uh, to struggle in this regard. And my specific research was to design and develop the first magnetically levitated axial flow blood pump. So basically it's a heart pump for children. Uh, and it was the first that was developed in, in the world. And what was, I think, really interesting is when you're making these career path shifts and you're making these decisions to pivot one way or another, you know, oftentimes we stop and we're like, are we making the right choice? And so I asked myself as a, a new graduate student, I wondered, am I making the right choice? And it's funny because I was in my pool uh, floating around, uh, having a nice time on a Saturday uh, at my new apartment complex. And I met Melanie Schroeder. And Melanie Schroeder just started graduate studies at the University of Virginia in the chemistry department. And I learned uh, that she is the granddaughter of William Schroeder. Now, William Schroeder was the second recipient of the pioneering Jarvik 7 heart pump. Okay. So Dr. Barney Clark was implanted in 1982. He was the first recipient and William Schroeder was the second and he lived a little over uh, 600 days being supported with that device. And, you know, you have to pause when these moments happen at times 
um, I really was just awestruck uh, by learning that about her when I'm wondering if I had made the right decision about my career path. And it really cemented the fact that I was dedicating my career to pediatric engineering and to developing devices to you know, really move the dial in an, in an attempt uh, to provide resources for, for children across our country and around the world. And so I knew I was on the right path, especially after meeting her. I mean, what are the odds of that, of that really happening? And it was just a, a tremendous, um, you know, occasion uh, to be able to, to, to meet her and an honor at, at the same time, you know, given her grandfather's role sure. in that historical and pioneering uh, process. And so after that, after getting my PhD, I went to, uh, I chose to work in cardiothoracic surgery. Mm -hmm. um, I thought that as an engineer partnering with a pediatric heart surgeon uh, would be the best kind of dynamic duo dream team scenario where I could learn the most about the clinical world. And then, you know, I could also help him to realize some of his goals of, of developing these inventions, these devices for children. So I went out to in the Indiana University School of Medicine, like I said, cardiothoracic surgery. And in this role, I collaborated to develop, a, it was a new flexible and collapsible blood pump. Um, in a way, it was kind of a propeller pump um, that leveraged some of the technology used in sailing, you know, where they fold the propeller blades, mm -hmm. ni nice compact profile. And then we would be able then to insert the device uh, into like the femoral vein, uh, advance it up toward the heart and place it ultimately wherever we wanted to. And then we could then activate it to expand out and rotate to impart energy to, to the blood. And this particular device was developed for children who were born with what is called a single ventricle physiology. Uh, and so these children are born with the most severe of cardiac defects. They have multiple malformations of their heart chamber. And when I say single ventricle, it's because we normally have two, we have a left and a right. And these children are born with only one of those, one of those pumps, one of those pumping chambers. And, and so as a result, uh, these children really have to undergo several surgical procedures uh, to create a physiology and anatomy where they can survive well into their 50s and hopefully uh, later in life as well. And so this type of device that I worked on uh, was really meant to just provide boost, a boost of energy uh, mm -hmm. to, to their cardiovascular system and ultimately be able to move some of that blood volume uh, that sometimes will, uh, you know, will basically be stagnant or kind of become a little congested on that right side. Um, so then, you know, after really spending a wonderful time at Indiana, I joined the faculty uh, of mechanical engineering. Uh, the nature of my research and my training, I really have the ability to fit in either one of those programs and teach fluid mechanics and, you know, cardiovascular engineering and dynamics. And uh, so I'm really kind of a good fit for, for either. And with my family being so important to me, you know, I had the chance to, to go to VCU and it was, you know, it was an amazing, uh, amazing time for me there. Um, and then around 2013, you know, I learned of Drexel University and I, I'd known about Drexel before, uh, but really became very much aware of what was going on at Drexel, mainly because of the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Yeah. Um, and so if I had a child who was sick with a heart defect, uh, who was born with, you know, congenital heart disease, maybe even acquired heart disease, um, CHOP, the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia is where I would take my yeah. child to be treated. It's the number one hospital system in the world in so many different areas. 
And I actually have collaborated and continue to collaborate with several pediatric cardiologists uh, who are very prominent in my field um, at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. So, you know, when, when I had the chance to go to Drexel, knowing that CHOP was literally down the street to the left, uh, yeah. it, it was a no brainer. And then learning about Drexel and, and how the, you know, their mission uh, is really transitional research. You know, as far as alignment, it was a, a perfect opportunity for me to continue to grow and really expand um, you know, in, in that research community. And so I, I joined Drexel in, in 2013. And so I think it may not be surprising to, to you when you think about my background. I, I know I went all the way from where I grew up, um, but my mission is, is to change the world in service to others. And I'm fortunate to have the opportunity to execute this in so many ways as a professor. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people conceptualize being a professor as a teacher. There's mm-hmm. a lot more to it uh, than, you know, than just being in the classroom. And yes, being in the classroom is incredibly important, uh, but there's also research and yep. other service activities that we do. And so you know, being a professor in the School of Biomedical Engineering, Science and Health Systems at Drexel, uh, in the heart of Philadelphia, the sixth largest city in the country with all the culture and opportunities. It's an academic ecosystem in so many ways. Um, You know, I can affect real change and I can do it through teaching, Mm -hmm. mentoring, designing, and innovating. And being a professor at Drexel definitely gives you all of those opportunities uh, to to, to be a change agent. And I've dedicated my career to innovating new uh, therapeutic solutions for children's cardiovascular diseases. And I recently kickstarted the first pediatric engineering degree program in the country as well. So I'm very excited about uh, you know, being at Drexel, being in Philadelphia, and, and really just realize everything that it has to offer. Yeah, I've, um, I've had the opportunity a couple of times in the past to, to come in your beautiful building over there on the campus, the Biomedical Engineering Science and Health Systems Building. And it's, uh, uh, it's glass and steel and it, it, it's just an awesome facility. And um, yeah, I, I think it's important, you know, when one does think of, of Philly and the biomedical scene, I think I, obviously the first thing that comes to, to mind is of course, we're a hot vaccine spot. We do a lot in cancer, but clearly with what you have going over there, um, you really, you know, putting us on the map, uh, not just with BioCERC, but, you know, a lot of the neuroengineering and everything else that's happening there. So it's a, it's a very, very impressive setup. Um, and I'm, I'm, yeah, set, I'm down the street from you. So <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that, yeah, that it's going on. Yeah, we'll have you back for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. I haven't had to go to CHOP for a long time. My kids are older now, but nonetheless, it's, uh, yeah, <laughs> and, and that ecosystem is, is second to none. So it's exciting. Um, yeah, I, 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 let's dive into... Uh, BioCERC for and 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 there's several parts to this, so I think we'll just to carve it up so people can really understand the scope. Um, because you know we mentioned a little bit about the pediatric, but the um, you know you, you focus on both uh, and pediatric and adult. Uh, and once again, we don't think of these numbers. You were you were talking about um, some of these really unique congenital problems, but uh, congestive heart failure, major progressive debilitating disease. 7 million or so suffering at 500,000 new cases each year. Talk a little bit about sort of where we, because I'm, I'm a pharmacist by undergraduate training. And the only thing I sort of remember about congestive heart failure, digoxin. <laughs> and everyone has congestive heart failure, here's some digoxin. And I didn't think much more about them at that point. But then, you know, you see them much later on. Uh, 
Um, talk a little bit about the issues that we're dealing with regard to congestive heart failure as a unmet medical need still in the year 2022. Absolutely. And, you know, I'd, I'd like to do it in a couple of different ways. Sure. Uh, obviously, the millions, I mean, millions worldwide suffer yeah. from congestive heart failure. And ultimately, it's, it's a progressive disease in nature. And it's almost a matter of what trajectory you're on. We're, we're going to be kind of moving in that direction as we age uh, over time, you know, and environmental factors, you have genetic predispositions, um, you know, obviously diet and other things can play into, you know, how quickly that trajectory, that slope of the trajectory might be, uh, but it, it's, it's pervasive. I, I believe the latest statistic is um, 670,000 uh, new diagnosis will occur of congestive heart failure, um, you know, this year. And it's, uh, it's just a tremendous amount of, of po patient population. And that also includes pediatric patients as well. Mm -hmm. And so while, uh, you know, the numbers are a little different in terms of they're more adults than pediatric patients, there's still significant challenges. Mm -hmm. And the challenges really revolve around uh, those donor organs. Yep. You know, on average, it's about anywhere from 3,000 to 3,800 um, or even less. It just depends on the year in terms of how many donor organs may be available. And at any given time, there could be you know, 4,000 individuals on the waiting list, even as much as, as up to 10,000 if we look world, worldwide at statistics. And so you, you, know, you have to wonder, um, as a heart surgeon, I've asked this question, you know, if, if you had, you know, if there's no limitation to the donor organ shortage, if you had a donor organ for the patients that you would immediately implant a new heart into, you know, how many would you think would, you know, would benefit from a new heart? And most of the surgeons that I talked to would say from anywhere from 35,000 to 70,000. Wow. If there were organs available today, that's the number who, you know, that would be implanted. And you also have to step back. It's donor organs is just part of the challenge, yeah. but it's also making sure that, you know, we have the immunosuppressives, that you have tissue matching, that your body isn't going to reject that organ. And so it's very important uh, to, you know, be able to kind of look at, at the big picture. Mm -hmm. And then what if they can't find their do donor organ? Um, perhaps there are reasons why you may not qualify mm -hmm. um, or, you know, for the transplant list, lots of reasons for that. They have committees that and guidelines to make those decisions. Sure. And so, you know, you have to then look to other technologies to be able to provide support. And so I've been working in the mechanical circulatory support space for a number of years. Mm -hmm. And my community has really focused on uh, developing devices as a perhaps a bridge, what we call bridge to recovery. Mm -hmm. So for some reason, a patient has undergone cardiac surgery, whether it's a heart transplant or, you know, a bypass procedure, um, then, you know, maybe they can't be weaned off of bypass or something along those lines. And so we have devices that can be employed and implanted to be able to provide temporary support. Mm -hmm. Then we have what we call bridge to transplant uh, devices that are used and systems to support patients just until that donor heart becomes available. And so these are the sickest cohort of patients that are really receiving these, these blood pumps, these technologies to provide support, to be able to give them another 30 days, 60 days, 90 days until that donor organ can be located. And then we have another a grouping where we often think of what we call destination therapy. Mm -hmm. And these are patients who don't qualify for a transplant for various reasons, 
um, but you know, could benefit and absolutely need a therapeutic solution beyond the drug therapies that they normally give. And so, you know, we do have devices that are designed uh, that have low wear um, and that have uh, support systems and, and power systems uh, that could ultimately support a patient for 10 to 15 years. And we have had some success with, uh, you know, the Jarvik technology and some of the other devices really being able to last up to five or seven years mm -hmm. supporting patients. And the more we learn, the more we learn about the physiologic response, the anatomic fit, um, the way to develop these devices to be modular so that they can be tailored for the specific patient. I believe the longer these devices will be able to provide the support necessary to prolong life and to do it at a quality of life that's acceptable for the patient as well. And, and Amy, you, know, you, you mentioned, um, you said the transplant uh, numbers at the beginning, and we, you know, we've done some shows in the past um, on some of the, uh, I would say the competing areas, but you know, they're all sort of are in this ecosystem. Uh, we had uh, Tony Atalo on from Wake Forest a couple of weeks ago talking about bioprinting new organs. And, you know, like in, in your particular case, you know, while there is, I, I look at it, there's the sort of the core research you're doing in terms of uh, creating that device, uh, in his case, you know, uh, uh, biologically new design heart, in your case, uh, uh, working with synthetic materials, but there are other components too, as you were just saying, and I was looking through um, your, your, some of the core areas of your research program, where you deal with, uh, there's a lot of big words here, computational fluid dynamics, hydraulic performance, um, there's rheology, and, and all sorts of things. What are some of the issues, um, so, so, so you have the pump, get that but what are some of the other issues that you really have to think about in your particular space uh, obviously you don't have to worry as, as tony does about you know uh, vascularization of the heart there is no heart there it's a device but you have to deal with you know what happens because that blood goes out and transmits throughout long systems of, of veins and arteries and so forth talk about sort of the beyond the device the things that you have to think about happening um to make uh, this a uh, not just an efficacious, but a sort of a safe device at the end of the day. Great question. So, uh, stepping back as far as the the pump design and development, mm -hmm. there there are many questions that we need to have answered, and mm -hmm. there are many safety uh, considerations. Sure. I mean, one thing obviously we're not pumping water; we're pumping blood. Yep. Um, and blood is truly thicker than water. It's about three and a half <laughs> times, about three and a half times thicker than water. And, you know, a lot of that thickness depends on uh, the cellular uh, components that are, mm -hmm. you know, that are basically in, 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 in the blood. Um, when we think of those red blood cells, for instance, and red blood cells are really interesting. They carry hemoglobin and hemoglobin is, is basically the oxygen binder. Mm -hmm. And so red blood cells are really critical uh, in, in our blood vessels to be able to deliver oxygen yep. and ultimately um, you know, provide oxygen to our end organs, our tissue, muscles, et cetera. So uh, we, we definitely do not wanna damage red blood cells. Right. So we have to be careful when we're designing our blood pump to consider you know, the, the cells, the proteins, everything that's traveling in the blood, mm -hmm. um, not just sort of the water-like plasma, yep. that's the fluid that kind of carries those cells. So red blood cells are a main component that we need to, to consider. And with more red blood cells also comes a higher thickness or viscosity of, of the blood as well. So for instance, if the patient's dehydrated or uh, perhaps has a blood disorder, mm -hmm. you know, we need to also be aware that you know, our pump needs to consider a range of blood viscosities. 
and a range of blood uh, compositions. In addition to red blood cells, we have to think about platelets. Mm -hmm. And many of you might know that platelets are responsible for um, sort of triggering that whole coagulation ca cascade. So basically generating clotting. If we were to cut ourselves, you know, platelets, red blood cells um, would help to, you know, be activated in that region and then ultimately help to start that clotting process. Mm -hmm. And so we need to be very careful about platelets uh, as well and understanding what triggers that, that, that cascading event uh, for the coagulation, generating a clot ultimately, you know, we, we want the, the cells to travel from the inflow to the outflow of the blood pump and basically be undisturbed, yep. not damaged, not have any sublethal trauma. Uh, we don't want to rip open those red blood cells and release hemoglobin into the plasma um, because then ultimately it, it won't be able to deliver the oxygen it's carrying. So we have to develop a technology, a device uh, where it's when it's blood contacting, very gentle, uh, it allows those red blood cells that readily deform anyway, which is really nice, uh, to, to just travel through seamlessly from inflow to outflow. And so we, we look for these particular fluid forces, we call them shears, and that is a force that's exerted over uh, a particular like contact area. So if you were to take your hand or fingers and rub, rub your fingers over the, the top of your other hand, for instance, mm -hmm. you're generating a shear force. And um, when blood cells travel through the pump, because they're rotational surfaces or, you know, even a urethane a sac, for instance, that's con you know, being collapsed and contracting in a pulsatile device, um, that could generate a force that's exerted right on the sort of outside membrane of those cells. And we have to be careful that that force is not too high. Um, again, have a nice gentle flow path from the inlet to the outflow. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, same thing for platelets. We don't want to inadvertently activate platelets to start producing a clot. That could be problematic in so many ways. Uh, for instance, if we generate a clot within the blood pump, there could be a situation where that clot is dislodged over time. And if you have this clot that then is dislodged and travels, it could travel up to the brain and ultimately uh, you know, generate a, a stroke mm -hmm. or go to the kidneys and create issues, the liver. Um, and so we just don't want to have those types of physiologic challenges that can occur. Mm -hmm. It could be life-threatening with our patients. So blood is, is definitely something we need to consider. And uh, with adult patients, I think we have a very deep understanding of the way that the clotting process occurs. Um, although there's some feed forward and feedback, um, you know, attributes that we're still learning about, which is wonderful, um, you know, but pretty much as far as, as how, how that the blood reacts, uh, we have a pretty good insight in that regard. And then what we call hemolysis or that damage to red blood cells, mm -hmm. we also have a fairly good understanding of how to design our devices to be gentle and to allow those cells to travel from inflow to outflow without um, sustaining really um, maybe minor uh, you know, uh, injury, but hopefully mm -hmm. none uh, to be able to move through. Uh, I think when we look Overall, you know, I think the, the clotting, having a small thromboemboli or a small clot, um, that is still a challenge with the devices over time. Uh, the longer the device is in, um, oftentimes the more that foreign surface uh, will elicit a response from the blood cells that, and proteins that are traveling past it. Um, and then as a result of that, you know, we could have some neurological deficits and some other uh, challenges as well that may occur from just even micro uh, thromboemboli that might travel then uh, to different regions of the body. 
Um, and I would also like, you know, the way when you look at how my field has evolved over time, uh, you know, we began with the Jarvik 7, a, a pulsatile device trying to truly mimic the heart's function, you know, to continue that heartbeat that we're so used to feeling and that we know is there and we can, you know, we feel it, you know, we, we sense it, we, you know, we can hear it. Um, and as a result of that, they tried to, to mimic this. And now the field has really dramatically shifted in the sense that devices are, are more what we call continuous flow. So no longer pulsatile, but having this kind of continuous flow aspect to it, characteristic. And one way to conceptualize this is think about like a boat propeller. Probably most of you have been on boats, you know, motor boats. So think of a boat propeller blade set um, that's encased in a housing and you add an inlet and an outlet um, that could serve as a, a blood pump. You know, obviously there'd be lots of design that would go into it, uh, but those propeller blades, they, you know, uh, displace water and ultimately cause the, you know, the boat to thrust forward. And basically a blood pump does the same thing. It imparts energy. You have those propeller and propeller blades that are rotating. And, you know, the third generation technology actually mimics the maglev trains, the, the bearings that are used in trains in Europe and in Japan. And so we're able to kind of levitate those propeller blades mm. um, using sort of a north and south pole magnet configuration. And then we have a traditional like motor a set of bearings to induce rotation. And, and this is wonderful because we can have much larger clearances. Uh, we don't have fluid seals and other issues that could trap cells and cause clotting uh, to occur much faster. Um, but with these continuous flow, you know, we're really affecting the pulsatility, right? We're, we're having a diminished pulse pressure. Mm -hmm. And another area that I've been focusing on uh, with a colleague at Thomas Jefferson University, um, you know, we've been looking at how does a diminished pulse pressure affect cerebral hemodynamics? So, so many people and so many researchers in my field have thought that, you know, some of the neurologic deficits that we see in some of the patients with heart pumps over time, um, that, that they attribute that to clotting. Mm. And, and I'm wondering, and, and, and so is Vectang, we're wondering if perhaps uh, it's the diminished pulsatility that might be impacting cerebral spinal fluid motility. Mm. And so we've been looking at, at that. And what's really nice is that continuous flow devices can be made pulsatile. We can have controlled speed modulation. Okay. Um, you know, if we know that this is a, a challenge, and that we can address some of those neurologic issues that our patients are experiencing. It may not fully be due to a clot. And so we're now sort of um, bridging in a way, uh, looking at the neuroscience aspects, neurovascular, and considering uh, really what's happening with the brain during, during these, these support scenarios. Very cool. Really, really and interesting. It's really exciting. And I think you probably are aware of what they did at the University of Maryland with the pig's heart transplant? Sure, sure. Yes, yeah. I mean, that's, that is like, that's paradigm shifting. And um, it's not gonna put me out of business for sure. No. No. <laughs> um, there will always be a need, especially the pediatric population, um, you know, as far as growing, you know, pig's organs and uh, pig's heart to be able to, to be, you know, grow as would a, a pediatric patient, I think there would be some limitations and challenges there. But ultimately, if, if and they're able to knock out uh, several genes that they discovered uh, would cause rejection. And then they actually added in uh, genes that would be able to promote 
um, you know, the, the organ being, you know, well received by the human body. And I just think it's phenomenal. And I'm, you know, pulling, I'm just, just as much as I can, hoping, hope, hoping that the patient will continue uh, to, to, to thrive and that we can learn more about um, regenerative medicine and, and really how to couple what we're learning about CRISPR and gene therapy. Yeah, I mean, the, um, the whole Xeno transplantation is, is interesting. I, I, I sort of, I followed it a bit over the years. It'll be, I, I'm, I'm in agreement with you, whether it's uh, Xeno or bioprinting or obviously the things that you were involved in, I think we're gonna need it all <laughs> um, uh, based on the scope of the, the issue that's out there. So um, I, I find these all very synergistic and, and, and interesting from that perspective. Um, the, you know, as you're talking about this fascinating um, sort of research dynamic, um, you know, clearly, uh, once again, I was looking through sort of the types of folks that you have at the BioCERC program, obviously experts like yourselves in engineering, uh, but you have both pediatric and adult cardiologists, you have the, the, the cardiothoracic surgeons, and, and then the whole area that you've also focused on, which I think is a very important, you don't normally think of translation, but you're really describing translational medical device you know, scale up and, and manufacturing. Talk a little bit about the types of people. I mean, I, obviously, you know, you, you have a, a very interdisciplinary team there. Talk about a little bit more about the scope of these folks. And, uh, you know, this is, this is very different than say, just, you know, this molecular biology lab that's looking at just, you know, certain genes and, and what have you. It's very, very integrated. Absolutely. And, you know, I think it's, it, you know, when I, when I stand back and look at my background and, and professional development, you know, I, I'm quick to identify what my knowledge gaps are. And the one, I mean, there's so many, but when you look at Drexel University and you look at the School of Biomedical Engineering, Science and Health Systems, it is a separate unit at the university. And it's separate for many reasons. Uh, but one is in fact to provide, you know, the, the, the ability for us to be nimble and agile and to do so in such an interdisciplinary collaborative way. Uh, we're able to, if you think of a spider web, that's ultimately how you look at all of the researchers in, in my school and, and how we are uh, permeating through almost every discipline in engineering science, uh, technology, medicine. Um, we, we have such a breadth of knowledge and, and background. And with that comes when you're thinking about the sort of translational pathway mm -hmm. to be able to move a device from, you know, what we often refer to as like the bench, you know, in an academic uh, research lab to the bedside. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are many hurdles along the way. And what's really nice about, you know, Drexel's environment, for instance, is that, you know, we have an endowed, excuse me, Drexel Coulter Translational Research Partnership. Yep. And this is a very powerful partnership, an influential partnership, in the sense that Wallace H. Coulter, of course, you know, uh, created this foundation. And, you know, being that we're one of the endowed programs, it really distinguishes Drexel as a leader in translational research. And, you know, this puts us among Duke, Georgia Tech, Stanford, Michigan, yep. University of Virginia, and Columbia. And, you know, that's just one piece of the puzzle. So there are resources that come with that. Uh, there's expertise, there's legal, there's, hey, how do you want to, do you want to start your own company? How would you do that? Do you want to partner with corporations? You know, how do you develop those industry partnerships? And, and so it does, it truly takes a village. And I, I, you know, I mean that in the strongest sense of the word. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we work with, I work with electrical engineering faculty. I work with mechanical engineering faculty. Um, you know, I work with human factors engineers because 
it's fantastic to build a widget, but you have to step back and your design has to have a, a human-centric aspect. You really need to be human-centric in how you approach that sort of design and translation. You need to be very thoughtful of you know, how the power cord connects to the device and do it in a way that that's safe and effective. Have a locking mechanism, look at ways that, you know, you could have failures, sure. you know, and to be able to go through and step through and even how you write a manual for using the device. You know, for pediatric patients, you have to, to go into it even deeper, you know, sort of beyond writing it for a lay population, like with you know, you know, perhaps a high school education is usually where we sort of start. Mm -hmm. But, you know, for children, if, if the device is going to be used in a much younger population, you know, subset, you're going to have to, to be able to communicate to that child how to use the device and come down to their level to be able to do that in a safe and effective way. Yes. And one aspect that we focused on um, when we're thinking about human-centric design is this concept of you know, can we use a modeling as a first pass tool to evaluate what we call erroneous and normative human behavior? And so I've been working with Dr. Ellen Bass in the College of Computing and Informatics, and she's also in the College of Nursing and Health Professions, and uh, she's world-renowned in human as a human factors engineer, and she's been, you know, truly excellent and outstanding in being able to allow us to, to shape the development of the device uh, to think of, hey, we need focus groups. We need to talk to nurses. Mm -hmm. uh, we need clinicians to come in and provide their expert opinion on usage, safe usage, as well as implantation. Like we need to talk to surgeons. Yep. And so it truly is an interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary team uh, that, that we've assembled and that I continue to build upon, you know, as we move through the preclinical into you know, animal studies, mm -hmm. and then of course, you know, try to get it as quickly as we can into that, that truly translational space. And then when you're even thinking of translation, you know, you need to be mindful of the fact that you have to prepare for, you know, FDA approval yep. and that, that IDE approval for a clinical trial and everything that you're doing in the preclinical the pre phase is data that you're gonna, is foundational data that you'll build upon so that you can move your device closer and closer toward really successfully making the case to the FDA for why it should be, be approved. And absolutely, you know, expertise from so many different areas, um, you know, even, you know, psychology, you know, you really need to draw on all of these areas of expertise so that it's, you know, especially in the pediatric space uh, to develop, to fully develop a safe and effective uh, device that can be seamlessly used sure. and um, you know we'll be able to provide that therapy that's much needed so with the, the drexel coulter translational research partnership that's one avenue of resources at drexel where you know if i need that assistance i can reach out to that program and they can provide connections uh, to me and also uh, perhaps even seed funding uh, for you know for support of that device also in philadelphia you know I, i'm just going to underscore that it is truly this you know, pediatric engineering ecosystem. You know, we have the FDA funded Philadelphia Pediatric Medical Device Consortium, um, and it's now statewide. So it's a Pennsylvania Pediatric Medical Device Consortium. And, and it was set up in collaboration with uh, Dr. Honorall and, and other leaders in biomedical engineering as collaborators with UPenn and CHOP uh, researchers and clinicians. And again, this is similar to the culture in so many ways, but 
it really provides the consulting, it provides resources and contacts uh, for anyone and everyone. Um, even how, how do you pitch to a venture capitalist, mm-hmm. right, for additional funding? You know, as an academic, uh, that's not the type of, of training that we, mm-hmm. we usually have. And so Philadelphia provides uh, these kinds of resources for small businesses, for, uh, for company startups out of, acad- out of academic units. And um, you know, to be able to, again, sort of ensure that that, that translational roadmap is successful. Amy, you know, coming back now, because I, I, I don't want to really overlook the, the importance of the pediatric engineering component of, of everything you have going on. And, you know, um, I think like most people, uh, aside from the sort of the pediatric cough and cold formulas that are upstairs here in my house, plus, you know, obviously, um, and we've seen a lot about it over the last couple of years with the vaccine, sort of the way things typically happen as with the COVID, we have the, the at-risk, then the adults, then the, the young adults, and then children testing and so forth happens much later on. But in your particular, and most drugs, you know, you open up that patient physician package insert, the pediatric section is empty, uh, of course. Um, in your case, you have to start, because it's not as much a, here's this uh, cool biocirc device for adults. We're not just going to make it smaller for kids. Um, there's a lot of other things that come into play here. Talk about how you go about th- I mean, thinking through the pediatric version or the pediatric devices compared to what you're doing on the, the adult side. Because I think it comes with a whole other slew of stuff that we don't normally think about, at least here, even the drug side, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah, pediatric comes much later. Uh, but go ahead, run with any way you want on that I one. Think with, with drug therapy, it's my understanding uh, from, you know, the information that I have about uh, how a drug would progress through FDA approval yeah. is it's pretty sort of set in stone in a sense uh, that, you know, it's like you benchmark 12 or 15, you know, safety and uh, effectiveness, uh, you know, levels, and then you know, you're able to kind of move move forward. And I'm not trying to trivialize it because it's a, it's a very complicated yeah. process. Right. But for medical devices in general, adults, like class three devices, for instance, and a heart pump would fall into that category. Um, we don't have those kind of benchmarks. Okay. We have to go on the devices that have been successful moving forward in the past. So we have to look to history in terms of what the FDA has, you know, sort of welcomed and approved in the past. And, you know, how do we sort of leverage that as our foundation for sort of foundational framework, how we would submit an application for approval. Um, And, you know, also a lot of companies in my field will go over to Europe. Mm -hmm. Uh, The, you know, their evaluation processes are, are often regarded as not as stringent perhaps. Um, you know, but the FDA, of course, you know, doesn't recognize that that data, um, and but it it still at least provides um, perhaps a snapshot or some information, um, you know, about this the safety and effectiveness of the of the, of the device. Mm-hmm. And when you look at pediatrics, you know, I think um, I I mean, just naturally, uh, they're even more careful and more vigilant in in how they approach approval. But as far as the challenges. Um, I would like to you know, kind of make a couple of comments sure. about what sort of inspired me to, you know, other than, you know, University of Virginia and everything, I, you know, when I look at pediatric engineering, um, you know, I think we can all agree that our children are our future, right? Yep. The next generation of leaders, innovators, and, and global game changers. 
and fostering their development and really watching them thrive matters to all of us. And, and I do think that we're, we're failing them, mm-hmm. at least in the sense of medical devices and medical interventions. I mean, current, current medical interventions treat our children really as if they're little adults, right? And you uh, had mentioned scaling and you know, how do you approach that? Yeah. Um, but children have unique anatomy and physiology yep. uh, that dramatically change during growth and development. And they're pediatric diseases, rare rare childhood diseases that are complex and distinct from adult diseases. And then, of course, you have some diseases in the pediatric space that continue uh, with the child into adulthood and then need to be managed uh, through adulthood as well. And so you have this kind of peds to adults theme that can also persist with devices and other therapies. And therapeutic innovation in children lags decades behind. Others for adults. And reasons for that are looking at market, um, you know, considering, um, you know, children are, they're just little adults, so let's scale. It's, you know, it's, it's a strategic failure to really look at the problems that our children face kind of in that one dimensional viewpoint. Um, we really need to do better. There are future, and in a way, as a call to action, it's really our responsibility. And so when I think about how I approach a blood pump um, or really any contact device, blood contacting device, or just any device for a child, mm-hmm. you know, I, I sort of have to step back and think, okay, their anatomy, um, what is their anatomic structure, the physiologic conditions, um, you know, what, what's the, the sort of, I guess, status of their health state. Mm-hmm. And then you have to think about how that might change over time whether it's with a device that you're using as an intervention or drug therapy coupled with your device. Right. And, and your particular technology has to be able to adapt to that. It really does for it to be helpful uh, for children. Now, one thing I like to point out is a heart transplant uh, for, you know, for adults, a heart transplant is it's really only good for 10 to 16 years. Because what happens is the heart, the you know the coronary arteries, that arterial bed, um, as will basically suffer from acute rejections. Yeah. And while immunosuppressives are are wonderful, they've advanced tremendously. Uh, they can't prevent these spike acute rejections that occur. Mm. And whenever there's that that acute rejection, there's an insult to those vessels. And what ends up happening is um, in the transplant organ, the the donor heart. Um, over time, there's kind of an accelerated coronary artery disease that is seen with these patients. So 10 to 16 years. And the framework of that, or I like to, to get you to step back, is if you have a child that receives a heart transplant at one, one year of age, you know, go out 10 to 16 years and they have to have another one. And now they're at an age and perhaps a size where they're no longer necessarily 100% looked at as a pediatric patient, but they're now looking at competing with the adult donor sure. organs and the need is much higher. Yeah. Um, and so when, when I approach a lot of the devices I've been working on, I've been, com- I've been trying to come up with a, a solution since there isn't one that where we can have a, a blood pump technology that could actually span the age range. And that means with growth and development of the child. Um, to be able to ultimately accommodate increased capacity. So, you know, as we grow and develop, we become larger, our blood volume also grows as a result of that, and we have a higher uh, blood flow, so a higher capacity. And then our blood pressure also 
you know, the pressure uh, is ultimately what drives flow through the circulatory system into our organs uh, to deliver nutrients, control heat and, you know, um, drive metabolism and of course deliver oxygen and then pick up, uh, you know, other aspects of metabolism. And so when we're kind of considering, you know, um, children, you, you really, it's, it's a whole different level of innovation. I mean, mm -hmm. all of these factors, when you're thinking of anatomy, growth and development, when you're thinking of even they're just um, psychosocial, like where they are in terms of their educational level and their understanding. Um, working in the pediatric space requires researchers to, to, to be transformative in terms of innovation. And all of, the, all of that innovation can also provide really unique solutions, even in the adult space. And so I've been, the devices I've been working on are kind of a combination of pumps, not just one pump, but perhaps mm -hmm. two, maybe even three, um, that are compactly integrated into one housing that we could perhaps toggle from one to another. Or maybe there's one pump that we use when the child is in infancy, and then we're able to activate a second pump as they grow and develop. And of course, you know, I have patents to be able to support these innovations. Yep. And we're continuing with our preclinical evaluation in, in my research program. And so there's so many different aspects that go into, you know, when you're, when you're looking at developing or interested in developing a pediatric device. So I hope, I hope that helps. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, it's exactly what I was looking for, just to really show the, uh, um, sort of the, the, the unique suite of, of, of what you have to consider in this population. And so it, it, it's a little more than is, you know, saying at the beginning when you're just scaling down the dose of a drug for somebody. So I, I think it's, it's really fascinating, Amy. It's, it's just really amazing work. Um, what, what's coming up for 2022? Anything new that you can tell us about? Any scoops you can give while, while we have you today? Conferences we should be watching you present at? Other stuff that you want to mention, please take the floor. I, um, yeah, I think when, when I look at, at the future and a lot of the initiatives that I'll be devoted to and, and working on, um, you know, I, I think of, you know, developing, you know, ultimately this, uh, what I'm calling the PEDS to Adults Collaborative. Okay. And this is a more of a center-like uh, configuration that I'm going to be establishing, um, you know, at Drexel, but it's really going to be, um, you know, part of Philadelphia. Excellent. And, you know, I'd like to sort of talk about how I plan to, to sort of roll that out. And, um, and it's really, it's, it's meant to be all encompassing, not just about cardiovascular, mm -hmm. uh, but to be able to bring in other uh, translational as aspects. And it's all about transforming, um, you know, pediatric global healthcare, uh, one child at a time, and doing that through a collaborative teaming, interdisciplinary, and from an innovative perspective. And so the Drexel Biomedical Engineering Peds to Adults Collaborative a Center will sort of sit at the intersection of uh, many regional partners um, and kind of in the Philadelphia Meds and Eds corridor. And, you know, these partners will include St. Christopher's Hospital for Children, the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, mm -hmm. University of Pennsylvania, the medical system, and then Thomas Jefferson University Hospital System awesome. as well. And I mentioned, you know, our mission to transform global pediatric medicine um, and healthcare one, one child at a time. And it's really all about determining the right treatment strategy for the right pediatric patient at the right time. Uh, so very much a personalized medicine approach 
uh, to, uh, to, to pediatric uh, engineering and um, developing those innovative solutions. And so I'm committed to really focus, uh, I'm committed to um, establishing that center, uh, really kickstarting it in a, a powerful way. Um, if anyone is interested in becoming involved, by all means, please feel free to reach out to me. I'm pretty easy to find on the biomedical engineering website. And I'd, I'd be delighted and honored to speak with you about what your interests are. And, you know, if there's also any, any, any connections I can help to, you know, you to make, or if you're just interested in biomedical engineering, I'm also uh, a good person to, to speak with with regard to that. Um, I will be speaking in a, a number of conferences. The World uh, Congress on Biomechanics will be in um, Taiwan. So I'm very excited about uh, that opportunity. It's um, it's, you know, very well attended a, a Congress, and I look forward to being able to share a lot of the work that I've talked about here, um, in particular with, uh, with a focus on what I call the dragon heart, mm. um, you know, Drexel dragons, but what, what kid would like to have a dragon heart? I mean, even I'm <laughs> excited about the possibility of a dragon heart. Um, and it's where, again, we're sort of using a combination of, of blood pumps mm -hmm. uh, to be able to create a solution to span the age range. Um, and, you know, even you could wait perhaps for that child to have a heart transplant later, uh, maybe as they, maybe 18 years of age, or, you know, just so you can prolong it to allow that organ uh, to, to last longer for them and provide the, the much needed uh, support and care. I am uh, cautiously optimistic about the xenotransplantation that occurred. Uh, Dr. Bart Griffiths is a, he's a pioneer, renowned surgeon in my field. And so I am really excited um, and optimistic. Hopefully that will continue to, um, you know, that patient will continue to thrive and do well. And we can learn even more about you know, how we can come up with uh, solutions on, I call it that side of the fence, <laughs> side of the fence, so to speak. Um, but I'll just continue to focus. We're, we'll be doing animal studies with my collaborators at Thomas Jefferson University. And while, you know, I'm not a big fan because I love animals, um, I do make sure that there's an educational training aspect sure. whenever I'm testing my devices with a surgical intern or, uh, you know, perhaps a surgical resident or something along those lines. Um, and so I'll just, you know, continue. My goal is to expand our global footprint uh, in the field of pediatric engineering and research innovation. And I really would, would like to overcome the barriers that are in place and almost change the narrative about pediatric engineering uh, so that people understand that, that scaling adult devices, it's really, it's a, it's a strategic failure where you're not going to be successful. And to understand that, um, you know, children, while a lot of them are very healthy, uh, the, the ones that are not and that are struggling, they're born with heart defects or, you know, develop acquired diseases as they age, um, that's, you know, they're, those children are, you know, they utilize healthcare resources yep. disproportionate to their numbers. And, um, you know, we're talking about tens of billions. And I, I think as a lot of organizations continue to track and do a deeper dive to understand uh, what the need is for pediatric engineering um, and what the need is for innovation in the space, uh, we'll be able to promote awareness to overcome those barriers in the translation of new treatment strategies. And I'm dedicating my career to this, and I'll, I'll continue, uh, continue to be a change agent, and uh, and ultimately, it's a call to action for all of us uh, to be able to, you know, to let people know what's going on and uh, move the dial.
Absolutely. It's it's amazing work, Amy. I, I, I'm thrilled that <laughs> not just that, you, that you're leading this, but, uh, you know, that you're that it's here in Philly as well. And you're really yeah, putting us on the map uh, for this amazing uh, area mm -hmm. of, 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 uh, of pursuit uh, that, that affects so many people. Um, yeah, we'll be reading on it. And, and in, in the bio for the show, I, I will put a all, all your information so people can find you. you in there as well. Um, yeah, I mean, for everybody that is going to be listening to this episode uh, across the different podcast networks or watching on the YouTube channel, you've been listening to the amazing Dr. Amy Throckmorton, uh, Associate Professor, Director of the BioCERC Research Laboratory, School of Biomedical Engineering Science and Health Systems, Drexel University here uh, in the city of Brotherly Love, Philadelphia. Um, Amy, once again, I want to thank you for taking the time to come on the show. Obviously, thank you for everything you're doing and continue to do. And as we like to say on this show, uh, thanks for helping to create a better tomorrow through what you're doing. Uh, really, really fascinating story. Thank you. It was my pleasure to be here. I really appreciate the opportunity. And I, I look forward to you visiting our campus soon. I'll be there soon. Great. <laughs> be well. <laughs>